As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. One of the things I've seen is that sometimes the time of greatest peril, and we are in perhaps the greatest peril of my adult life, can also be the times of greatest opportunity and progress. And it is possible if we keep organizing and electing and mobilizing and organizing and electing and mobilizing, that this will turn out to be the beginning of a great progressive era in American history. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. In this episode, I met with Heather Booth at her house in D.C., and we talked about her six-decade career in activism. She's played a part in just about every progressive movement for justice and equality since the civil rights movement in the 1960s. I much enjoyed the conversation. And Heather is a political entrepreneur as well, founding, among other organizations, the Midwest Academy, which is a leading national training institute for the movement for social justice. If you're not aware of her work, you should be. So with that as background, a quick word from our sponsor, then my interview with Heather Booth. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So Heather, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Heather Booth. Very glad to be talking with you today, Nathaniel. I'm glad to. I'm glad there's a program that connects people in the movement with each other and develops cross-collaborations if possible. For me, I grew up in a very loving family in New York. I grew up in Brooklyn, and both my parents were just good people who really believed you should treat others with dignity and respect. And so I also had the benefit of growing up knowing what being loved is and loving. And I still believe love needs to be at the center of what we do. By 1960, I was born in 1945, so I was still in high school in 1960, I found my way to the American Friends Service Committee and became active on a number of issues. The first issue I was active on was against the death penalty. And then I found my way to the civil rights movement. And I feel I was someone waiting for the 60s and I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know what that would mean. And I joined support of the sit-ins at Woolworths 
where in the South, African-Americans weren't allowed to sit at their lunch counters. And by 1963, I went to college at the University of Chicago, in part because it was one of the few schools that did not have a sorority and did not have a drinking culture and did. And I was looking for something that would more be, have both an academic interest, but also social action interest. I felt that was more likely to be found there. And within weeks of starting at the university, I became active in uh, a school boycott against segregated schools in Chicago. There were black schools and white schools near each other. The black schools had second-rate everything. Uh, Chemistry lab, the white schools had a full chemistry lab. Black schools had used textbooks. The white schools had new textbooks. There was overcrowding in the black schools and empty classrooms often in the white schools. And as a result, they created what are called Willis Wagons, uh, named after the superintendent of schools on the black school grounds to prevent integrated schools. And so there was a school boycott. I helped to organize Freedom Schools for the South Side of Chicago, Freedom Schools for the School Boycott. And in doing that, I became very active in Friends of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and the Coordinating Council of Community Organizations, the leading civil rights group in the city. And from there, I found my way from one movement activity to another. I was very active in the civil rights movement. In 1964, I went to Mississippi with a Freedom Summer Project, and many people heard of that project because the three young men who were volunteers, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney, and Mickey Schwerner, were killed at the hands of the Klan. But because people organized, within a year there was a Voting Rights Act. And now I tell people that in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, there's a Shakwe Lumumba is the mayor, and he says he's the most radical progressive mayor in America. And it's because people organized. And there's an enormous pushback on all those voting and civil rights. But we make progress if we organize and only if we organize. And big lessons that I took away was that you need to trust local people. You need to ensure they are the leaders in their struggle. I learned that there's some unjust laws and you have to stand up to unjust laws. And fundamentally, that if you organize, you can change this world, even when it seems most hopeless. I came back to my campus. I was involved in many other things. And then a friend had been raped at knife point in her bed. We went with her to student health to get a gynecological exam. And she was given a lecture on her promiscuity and told that student health didn't cover gynecological exams. But we sat with her. They called it a sit-in. And because people organized, women can now get covered by student health, but only because people organized. Again, there's a pushback, but we make change when we organize. And then another friend was pregnant and nearly suicidal and wanted an abortion. And I looked for a doctor and found one through the Medical Committee for Human Rights and found a Dr. T.R.M. Howard who had been a civil rights leader in Mississippi and came to Chicago when his name was on a Klan death list. And he set up a clinic on 63rd Street called Friendship Clinic. He performed the abortion. Everything was successful. And word spread. I didn't discuss it. And someone else called. That procedure was successful. Word spread and someone else called. And at that point, I decided to set up a system. And I named it Jane. Between 1965... And 1973, when Roe became the law, 
the women of Jane performed themselves. They learned the procedure and performed 11,000 abortions before Roe. I then was active in many other things. In 66, there was a sit-in at the university against the war in Vietnam. Uh, The university was putting the rank of male students by grade point average and giving it to the selective service system. They'd draft men based on where you were in the ranking. And we knew there was some relationship between class and race and rank. Were they drafting the low-ranked people first? The ones who had the worst ranking. Yeah. yeah. And so we created a group called Students Against the Rank and had a sit-in, the first sit-in, campus uh, sit-in at a university against the war in Vietnam. The national secretary of the leading student organization in the country then, Students for a Democratic Society, came in as an outside speaker, and his name is Paul Booth, and we sat next to each other, had a lot to talk about for several days and nights in the administration building, and after three days, he asked me to marry him. After five days, I said I would, that we waited a year, and we were married until his death in January. We were married for over 50 years, and a real partnership in this movement. And uh, now I try to carry on for both of us. I did some labor organizing, and with money I won from a back pay suit, where I really was unfairly fired. I wasn't trying to organize there. In fact, I swore I wouldn't organize because we had no money and I couldn't be fired again. I won a back pay suit. And with those funds, I started a training center called Midwest Academy. And that's a training center for just thousands of organizers from Planned Parenthood and NAACP and Sierra Club and student organizations and senior organizations and small groups and large groups. And it's still based in Chicago, midwestacademy.com. And there's a book that people can buy, even online, called Organizing for Social Change. And the academy provides not only skills, like how to chair a meeting or raise money, but also context, uh, how to understand the political and social context of this time, and economic context. And then also how to do strategic thinking, how to figure out what to do when you don't know what to do. It's probably the leading center that provides that kind of training. I then set up a number of organizations, a group called Citizen Action, that built a model of statewide multi-issue organizations. Before Citizen Action, there were local groups and national groups, and no one really had statewide organizations, but there was statewide power. And they also were multiracial. There were many groups that were for a particular constituency, seniors or environmentalists. Or, But what if you're a senior environmentalist? And so we created these multi-issue groups. And then in 1980, when Reagan was elected, I realized we have to do elections. Or as my friend Alice Palmer said, who a, was a state legislator, uh, or elections do you. And I'd been skeptical of elections before. After all, I lived in the Chicago of the original Mayor Daley, and or worked in Mississippi and saw how politics worked there. But I realized that you need to become involved in elections and both do the organizing and the elections and the protesting and the organizing and the elections, and it's a constant loop. I worked in many campaigns. I went to work for the Democratic Party. I came in to set up a field operation, and then I did the outreach, the single-payer advocate, 
I did the outreach for the Hillary Healthcare Plan. Then I did international pro-democracy work. And then Julian Bond, who was a great civil rights leader, asked me to become the head of the advocacy arm of the NAACP. And in the year 2000, we had a massive, massive multi-million dollar get out the vote effort and helped to increase African-American turnout by nearly 2 million votes and particularly increased the turnout in Florida. And it's a major reason that Bush felt he had to steal the election because the turnout was so great. And I did that and then started to run large-scale issue campaigns. I was asked to set up one of the first immigration reform campaigns, ran the campaign for the first uh, Obama budget, AFL-CIO's campaign on health care for the ACA, the campaign for financial reform, for marriage equality around the Supreme Court decision, and was recently the field director for the campaign to stop the tax cuts for the millionaires and billionaires and the large corporations, which, in fact, Mitch McConnell now says uh, he wants to lead to the cuts in Medicare and Medicaid and education and everything else that helps make life decent. So that's an overview of much of my life in organizing. It's so much that it's daunting for me to try to even delve into the details of it. I wonder, though, looking back on this a little bit now, what is your feeling about the country right now? We are in an era of reaction, and it's distressing. One of the things I've seen is that sometimes the time of greatest peril, and we are in perhaps the greatest peril of my adult life, can also be the times of greatest opportunity and progress. And it is possible if we keep organizing and electing and mobilizing and organizing and electing and mobilizing, that this will turn out to be the beginning of a great progressive era in American history. So while day to day it is daunting, challenging, I often feel it's whiplash, you wake up and you say, oh my God, do we run to the airports because there's another attempt at attacking immigrants? Do we support voting rights, which are being threatened in state after state? We just hear there's 50,000 votes being held up, uh, registrations in Georgia that a busload of black senior citizens were told they couldn't go to the voting poll. Of uh, it just one story after another. Do we fight on that? Do we fight on Planned Parenthood, where clinics are being closed? Do we fight on uh, democracy itself? It is a daunting period. It is a perilous period. People will suffer. I mean, children will suffer, and needlessly. And it's also true that the seeds of this resistance that is larger, broader, more connected, uh, more diverse, more sensitive to each other's concerns than I've ever seen in my life, I think could be a harbinger of, in effect, a new spring to come. Um, but it's only, it depends on what we do to make it so. You mentioned at the beginning of your sort of biography that your parents taught and you learned that love should be at the center. And I think you tried to incorporate that into your movements, into your thoughts about the world. But the movement of the other side, I think, puts something else at the center. Maybe it's fear. They maybe put the 
exact opposite, and yet they were successful in 2016, and they're moving the country in a different direction. How do you think about doing what is right when sometimes the opposite wins out? When I'm confused, and I'm often confused, I do try to center myself and at least personally think, well, what is the right thing to do? So there's some clarity about a moral basis for being in this work, taking the risks, doing the activity. And then I try to think about what will be successful. So it's not enough to be right. It's important to be right. If you're not right, (laughs) why do this at all? But just saying what's right and not doing the things that make it true. So I think having a sense of a strategic plan matters a great deal. There are three kinds of principles that we try to teach, both at Midwest Academy and that I try to follow in terms of how to move forward. One is that I try to work on those things that will actually improve people's lives. And whatever the issue, I try to connect it, not to just the abstractions of justice and democracy, though they are essential, but based on those moral principles, will it actually make our air cleaner? Will it make us feel safe when we're walking in the streets? Will there be more money in our pockets? Will we be able to feed our kids? So a concrete improvement in people's lives so that the struggle isn't just an abstraction for people. The second thing is to give people a sense of their own power, and it's how people engage. So it's not just us doing for others. It's not even advocating for others. So that's important too. We need to speak out and say, what we think is right or wrong, but it's working with people so they find their own voice and they find they can stand up. And that's a direct action elements of organizing. And then the third is changing the relations of power, looking for structural reforms. And sometimes one reform can build on another and build on another and give people confidence that if you fight, you can actually win while you hold out a bold vision of what it's worth fighting for. And one movement serves as a model for the next movement for justice. Oh, definitely. And in many ways, the civil rights movement has served as a model for all modern movements. And I'm sure that was based on traditions even older. I think I come from the same general tradition as you in thinking that all those movements were on the right side of history, that they were all bringing rights to people who didn't have them, that they were making the country better. But how do you know that you're right sometimes when you are launching a social movement? Because there are people on the other side working on their own social movements. There are people on the other side who have been working on a social movement which they think is about justice. How do we know we're right when we're fighting a fight? The things that I look at are Does this expand people's participation? Does it expand their ability to have a full life and make the choices they want to make? Does it increase the power that the average person has? You know, when Roe was argued at the Supreme Court by Sarah Weddington, who was in her 20s, in her closing she said, uh, she didn't argue it about abortion, she argued about when or whether a woman can decide to have a child. 
And if you can't make that most personal decision, you can't really have full participation in the society. We should also remember when Roe was argued, you couldn't hold certain positions if you were pregnant. Yeah. Well, if, it's, a, it's a hugely economic question. It is a moral question. It's an economic question. And it's a question about full participation in the society. And so at the point that the issue of abortion came up for me, it was... I've never had to face it myself, but a friend facing it was nearly suicidal, feeling if she couldn't do it at that point, was it even worth living? And she needed an option. And the numbers at that time, one in three women were having an abortion until fairly recently. I think it's now one in four. People who are in your trade who are uh, working, organizing for progressive improvements of the country, do you think that they're different from other people? Well, people come into activism in many, many different ways. Most common thing is they're facing some kind of abuse either to themselves or to people they care about. And once you realize you're talking about real people, human people, uh, as opposed to abstractions, you say, well, gee, that's not right. Could we do anything about it? And then you may not know what to do. So then if you see other people say, well, this is something we could do, you say, okay, I'll go along, but I'm pretty scared. I don't think I could really do anything. And I've often felt, I don't know if I could do something. I don't know if I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I'll know enough. We're told so much by the society, we are not good enough. We don't know enough. But in fact, when we come together, we can find ways to support each other and learn together. And so that lets us move to another step to say, I took this action. I could see how it changed both the situation and how I was changed. But a fairly small number of people do take those actions. Like I was watching the documentary film that has been made about you and your life in, act in activism with my wife. And her reaction was, one, she was kind of wowed by you, but also she's like, I don't know how to do this, exactly as you're saying. So I think there is something different about the people that are swept up in this and that and get an appetite for it. Let me first make a general comment, and then I can also talk about my own history. Yeah. That in general, there is now more activism of millions of people are coming out in one form or another. It may not all look the same. Right after the election, the turnout of the Women's March was millions of people all over the country. I think all over the world. And that included my wife. Who, and so that is So she did right? come out. Right. That's first of all. Yeah. That in fact, people who never did something before could take a first step both because the issue was so demanding. It felt like, my God, in effect, the election, if it wasn't stolen, it was with three million more votes for one candidate and the other person becomes president. And the consequences of what it means for our lives and the lives of our kids and the lives of people we care about is so motivating. So the motivation is there. Also, someone then made a call. Let's do this on the same time. Okay, that seems good. And then your friends are doing it. You say, okay, well, at least I'll go out. Will it be safe? I have to be reassured. Or if it's not safe, I have to feel I'll be prepared for whatever's coming up. And people are coming out. There are also more people being active online, which is an exploding world from indivisible. 
where you're both online and on the ground. And then all the organizations, swing left, red to blue, all the groups that have set up in the last election. So there are millions of people who are now active who weren't active before, but they may be active in different ways. It may not be their full occupation. And I was over 40 before I realized this is what I'm doing because <laughs> I didn't quite realize it was an occupation in quite the same way. But One way that I think about you is kind of as a political entrepreneur because I was an entrepreneur mm. in that space more or less. And so you started this academy and you've been part of starting quite a number of groups and, and getting a number of movements off the ground. That's entrepreneurship in a certain way. What do you think are the characteristics of a strong political entrepreneur? Well, first of all, there are many people who are full-time activists who stay in one issue for their whole life. My husband, for 43 years, he was with one union, though in a number of different roles. And he used that position also to help advance many other things, including a peace agenda against the war in Vietnam, a agenda of support for community organization. For me... I look for where is there the greatest opening for the greatest number of people to make the greatest progress at any one time where my particular skills and limitations can still work effectively. I have many limitations. There are many things I can't do. I'm not a skilled online activist. In fact, I want to be, but I need to be paired with someone who has more of the social skills. I'll be 73 in a few weeks, and I'm of a certain age. and But there are a few things I learned. And with those things in partnership, I find it's exciting and invigorating to be in this work. Number one, because I do feel we're fighting for the and organizing and working for the things that would lead to the beloved community that Dr. King talked about that really is a, a society in which people are treated with dignity and respect and find meaning in their lives. So what do you think makes someone good at starting those sort of enterprises that work on that, like you have, like the Training Institute? Well, I do think it starts with feeling of um, kind of a moral compulsion. You want to do unto others as you'd want done to yourself, the golden rule. Mm -hmm. It can also be a hatred of injustice against the other golden rule that he who has the gold makes the rules. And I do think you need to love people but fundamentally. You, but you can, one can have all those characteristics and not make an enduring institution like you have. So there's more to it, I think. Well, I've seen some things that work in making effective change and so I've tried to mirror them. I see how hard work matters, how being systematic matters, how following up on the details, and sometimes looking at the details matters as much as looking at the big principle, building up other leadership, not feeling you have to do it all yourself, not wanting to do it all yourself, knowing you need others, being open to new ideas, being willing to step aside when new leadership does arise and you feel there can be a good transition so it won't be jeopardized. I think taking responsibility, a problem happens, something goes wrong, and the first reaction isn't, why did you do it wrong? But 
what could I do to fix this? Is there anything I could do to fix it? What do I learn from this so that I don't do the same mistake again? Who did you have for heroes along the way? You know, probably my parents are amongst, I don't know if I thought of them as heroes, but... Sounds like you do. They are, they both died. Um, They were people who were such good people. They tried to live good lives, but also they were loving and caring. They were fun. I mean, I was lucky to be in that family. There are many heroes, uh, some whose names are prominent or more prominent, like Fannie Lou Hamer from Mississippi, who was a great courageous leader, or Bob Moses from Mississippi, who was the head of the Freedom Summer Project. But there are also people who I just work with every day. Uh, Jackie Grimshaw, I worked with her in the Mayor Washington campaign. I was her assistant, and she was field director. I learned a work ethic from her as well as a moral clarity. Whether it was a high-ranking politician or whether it was a canvasser who was going out for the first time, she treated everyone in an even-handed way. There really weren't special favors. That's incredibly rare. It was very rare. And also, this was a mayor who was working against a patronage system to say, (laughs) we are working against the special favors. But I saw it firsthand. And so rather than having just a few heroes, I feel I have so many. What about among the folks that have gone through your academy or the, young, the, the current generation? Who, who do you admire out there and what they're up to? Boy, there's also a long list. Mm. Uh, and some didn't go through my training, but they've got their own conception of what they're doing. And and I learned from them, Rashad Robinson with Color of Change. He is a dynamo. He is a a social movement entrepreneur, but creative and honest and uh, positive and moving forward. Ajin Poo, Christina Jimenez, who's the head of uh, United We Dream, who brings her own uh, courage and her family story into what she does. Carmen Berkeley, who I think she directs the advocate, part of the advocacy arm of uh, Planned Parenthood. I knew her when she was a student leader of the United States Student Association and then had a number of other jobs, including at the AFL-CIO. These are parts of the voices of another generation. Austin Bilali, who used to work at Democracy Alliance and was in charge of the youth civic engagement sector, is uh, a young guy who was my assistant on the last project I worked on, Nick Guthman, who's the son of organizers who we were friends with. I recently interviewed him, actually, yes. And I think Nick is is dynamic, and he's got this uh, project to recruit people in high school or in college to work in electoral campaigns, to learn it from the inside at a young age. So there actually is a long list. Right now, there are two women working with me on very different projects, one is Kara Freebaum, who I met because she was she made a film as part of her college graduation on movement organizing in this era. And she interviewed me. I was very taken with her. She then said she was looking for a job. I had a job. And I said, let's work together. It has been my great fortune to work with her. She is dedicated, hardworking, thorough. She learns quickly. She's a self-starter and also can uh, follow 
<laughs> what we need done. I, I really feel she's helping to organize my whole life. Another woman working on, with me on the promotion of this film you mentioned, Sarah Newman. And she also is just, she's so creative. She came out of the film world, but with a deep social action commitment. Had once been a union organizer. Anyway, it's my great fortune to be working with him. So I've been interviewing people for a year and a half, three a week, and a lot of that, and that all came after the 2016 election. And I've just marveled at the new groups, the new energy, the new technologies that, but do you see this as a very different moment than we've had before? Well, I think it's the most perilous moment of my lifetime. I think there've been worse times in American history and worst time in world history. We've had world wars, we've had a civil war, we've had... Massacres. Yes. But it's the worst time, it's the most perilous time. There's a pushback on almost every advance we've made toward greater openness of a society, greater democracy, greater generosity, greater equality. On the environment, on you name it. Every, everything you care about politically is under threat, just about. So I think that that is, the challenges are greater and it can be numbing because you're, you're facing up to a new threat almost every time, and not just one, multiple threats. It's a massive challenge to connect all the pieces. There may be ways to connect it if you listen to what people care about. I told this story before. At the beginning of the environmental movement in 1970, when it really burst forth with the first Earth Day, it was going to be a demonstration. And I was very busy at that time. I had two little kids. I had a full-time job. I was <laughs> had a movement life. It was hard to hold things together. And I was asked to go to a an environmental demonstration. And I said I was too busy and I couldn't come. And... They actually wanted me to do to make phone calls for it. I said I couldn't do it. And the person frustrated on the other line said, that's the trouble with you people. You're too apathetic. Well, I wasn't <laughs> apathetic. Right. I didn't want to do what they wanted to do. But I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. At the same time that they were fighting, this was air pollution, I had a son who had very severe asthma, we would rush to the hospital, sometimes put in an oxygen tent at that point, to save his life. And when it was, it was explained to me, if we do this, we can address asthma and the air pollution that's causing his shortened life. And in fact, we change those laws. And because we change those laws and his life is extended, he's now almost 50, I was glad to be out there for that demonstration. So we do need to connect with what people really care about on the terms that they care about them. You mentioned that you're coming close to 73. Where do you want to take your career from here? <laughs> What's next for you? Well, I don't know about career separate from life. At the center of my life is time with my grandkids and my kids, family and friends. Uh, there are many things that I love doing from book clubs and theater and hiking and traveling. But I do hope to see a rebirth of a progressive movement. I hope we see it in part through this election that's coming up 
And it matters not only that we vote, but that we do work in this election and that we encourage others to do work. And I feel I've got a very busy life, but I'm now trying to figure out exactly where I will go out, how long can I go out, what's the tasks that I can take that would be helpful uh, to fit in in many races at all levels. And then if there is the rebuilding of progressive power, I'd like to be able to support efforts that are exploring how we improve lives, give people a sense of their own power, and change the relations of power. I'm now working on a project to explore if it's feasible to create a campaign on prescription drug prices. There's a level of monopoly control that literally controls people's lives and whether people can live or die. A medicine may be available, but not accessible to you because the price is just out of reach. And so I think something needs to be done about that. You mentioned that in 1980, about around that election, that you kind of moved into caring about the electoral game more. There's so much weight on one man or one woman, say, running for president. An incredible weight across every dimension of character and leadership. What do you think are the characteristics of a person we should be searching for or finding in 2020? Well, one of the reasons there are primaries is that people are tested in the field of campaigning. Uh, you don't really know what people are going to do until they're under that pressure. And can they appeal to the majorities that allow you to win? And is it worth working for them because they inspire people to be engaged? So I'd say both the bold progressive vision, the connecting with people in their everyday life, the fighting on the issues that people care about, and being known as someone who's a fighter for real people, and also that they want to empower us, that it's not about being a king over us. So I think there are a number of great potential candidates right now. I Someone did a count and said he he had counted 29 people who were running for there's the Democratic that, candidate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's even more. Um, and I think it's exciting. Do you, tr do you trust that the somewhat bizarre process we have for winnowing that list will, will get us to the right person? Sometimes the wrong person has been chosen. Sometimes it's also because of us. Was there a strong enough movement to support the good things that were done and hold accountable when the better alternatives were not chosen? And sometimes we were not strong enough. I do think leadership matters enormously. And I also put my hope as much in the organization of people and the mobilization. And it's the combination online and offline in elections and in organizing with all the elements that I think moves us forward. When, when I'm talking to people, I talk, I've really talked almost entirely to people sort of on our side. What's your attitude towards the other side? There are some people who are so filled with hate and play a vicious role, and I'm not interested in spending time with them. I don't think it's effective. I don't think it will be persuasive. <laughs> uh, they won't persuade me and I won't persuade them and it will just um, 
be a fist fight. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, so I'm not for talking to everyone. But I do think it's important to understand how other people think and see things. And like I said, there are sometimes a person can think they're on so-called another side and just didn't see how it was affecting them also. And for that, you need not only to talk to people, you need to listen. Before marriage equality had the popular support, there had been, I think, five ballot measures, and they lost, 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 lost five. (laughs) And it's because people weren't supporting it. And finally, they said, well, look, let's review what we're doing, and are we listening to people? And if they have concerns, how do we engage those concerns? And in California, there was a group that decided to go out with what they call the deep canvas, talk with people and listen. And so after explaining what they were there for, explaining why they were on someone's doorstep, they said, have you ever had a situation in which you or someone you loved wasn't treated right, was treated badly, was made fun of, even could have lost their job over this, and you didn't know what to do. Have you ever faced a situation like that? Not everyone, maybe one in three, one in four, one in five people would stop and say yes. And then the next comment isn't a, isn't a comment, therefore sign up, but how did it make you feel? What did you think? What did you do? What happened? What could we have done together? Do you see how someone else might feel the same way? And so it's a listening and an engaging. I also think there are people who have different views on some issues and have shared views on other issues. And we can find ways we can make common cause on the issues on which we agree. And then by relationship, we may change on some of the other issues or decide we'll still get together even though we don't agree on that. Some things are just a bridge too far. I spent one summer canvassing uh, for one of the PERGs, Colorado Public Interest Research Group. Oh, that was a major one. And at the beginning of the summer, I was terrified to go to a house. And by the end of the summer, my brother and I were both extremely good at it. Like we could talk people into a check for an environmental group that never would have thought <laughs> they that they would do that. I learned a lot about people. Like everybody that you go to their door and can get into a conversation with has a life, has people they care about, has common interests with you. Even if they disagree with you politically, they might be harder to get to support what you're doing. I know you, you're you considered a canvassing pioneer. What, what, what do you think you've learned from the world of actually talking to people at their doorstep? I think that people who are canvassers are amongst the most extraordinary of people. If you make it as a canvasser, it means you know how to listen to people, size up a situation quickly, uh, focus what it is, the point that you want to make, be confident in what you want to say, uh, be honest and genuine and know how you connect with other people. You also have to have courage, resilience, know how to take no and keep moving on and build also a community so that you enjoy working with other canvassers. So I think that 
canvassers themselves are amongst the most vital and important people. The truth is, I was never a very good canvasser. <laughs> and so maybe I have even greater admiration for people who canvass. I know that you've been interviewed a lot, and there's been a movie made about you. And uh, But what is a question that you haven't been asked that you wish you had been asked, if there's any? Huh. Well, your questions are quite good. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, one is how to think about this as a long-distance run, not just a sprint, a lifelong pattern and and part of our lives. And here I'm talking about a life of commitment. It doesn't have to be that you're an organizer. You might have another job as a, you're a programmer or you're in hospitality or you're in sales or you're, you're doing something else. But the commitment is there. And when there's a call, you can be there. You make time to do something around the election. You go to the community meeting. You can show up. You do the work online. You do the work on ground. And also, even within movement organizing, there are many different roles you might have. There's research. There's analysis. There's the public speaking. There's the people who do the writing. There's the people who do the editing. There's the people who fix the computers. There are many different roles. But I think to have a view that this is a fundamental part of my life, giving back to the society, leaving it better than when I found it. And that means finding more people and supporting them to carry on this effort. The things that I find help me continue in this work one, I think we should build healthy organizations. I think we not only need to have the benefits that even in modest-sized organizations, so there's health care for people, there is break time, that we respect people's time, we respect people's lives, sick leave, paid sick leave. <laughs> so we treat people right, and also how we treat them in the organization. If they haven't produced, we talk with them honestly about what didn't work because if they're in the organization, they should want to be effective. And if they want to be effective, they probably want to know how to be effective. And if they're not, they need to learn how to be effective and then to be supported when they are effective and applauded and praised. Nothing is too small to give recognition to people. And I also think nothing is too small to give correction and support so that we can make it better. So one is the culture we build within the organizations. A second thing is that we have lives in addition to our organizational lives. For as long as I've had grandkids, which is now 14 years, every weekend, they don't live in the same city that I'm in, so every month, my husband and I would take a long weekend and go Friday through Sunday one weekend a month, to visit one family or the other on average, or they'd come to us or we'd meet up someplace. And it's an important part of our life. It's as important as the work we do, uh, feeling that love and that support. A third thing, so if, if one is the culture we build, one is the lives we build, ensuring their support and we have time for friends and family. The third is having a sense of a strategic plan. 
So based on the moral commitments that get us into this work, having a sense of why actions will lead us to a more positive end. I think the main reason people leave this work is they think that the strain is not worth the achievements that they manage. And I think to see how you fit into a longer-term plan. We may go through a period of not winning, but what are we building? Are we stronger now than we were before? How can we be? What do we learn from it? What's our projection? Is our projection getting better and better? And we attract people not by saying, oh, we're a valiant losing cause. We attract people by saying, together we can win. When you look back at the fights that you've won and the fights that you've lost, what do you think is the highlight? <laughs> in some ways, it's whatever I'm working on at that moment. I love this work. I love the people I work with and the goals we're fighting for. But is there a moment that, like, if they're talking about you after you're gone, you would want them to associate you with? I guess it's really the impact maybe I had on other people, people who I worked with who thought it was they survived it <laughs> and what they learned from it. I value that a lot. There are some victories that I think really mattered. I usually played a very small role within it. Sometimes there's a romanticizing of what a period was like or an organization was like. Mostly when you're in it, I would end up thinking, I'm too hot, I'm too tired, I'm too cold, I'm too, it's too much, it's too boring. <laughs> one more door to knock on, <laughs> one more, at one point, envelope to seal, one more email to send out. But it's the overall picture. And then feeling that exhilaration together of standing with people, of standing up, and of ourselves changing in the course of that. Well, I'm confident that there's a bunch of people in that category that owe a lot to you. And it was a great pleasure to have a chance to chat with you today. So thank you. Lovely to talk with you. This is a lovely conversation that you create. Thank you very much. That was Heather Booth. She's at www.midwestacademy.com. I'm hoping that Heather is right and that we can use our current time of backsliding and reaction to propel us to a new progressive era. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with a great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at resistancedashboard.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.